0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. We are thick in the middle of the kenosis passage. It's called kenosis as the noun form of the verb kanao it's not the noun it's actually the verb that's in this paragraph the the noun kenosis is nowhere in the bible uh nowhere at all and yet we call this the kenosis passage or the kenosis hymn uh everyone refers to this as the kenosis because jesus did the verb he did kenao himself and so i don't think it's wrong to call it kenosis it is a greek noun it is used in secular greek it is used in medical literature and political literature and other other uh documents from the ancient world, just not the Bible. So anyway, be that as it may. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the morphe theu, in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Kanao, emptied himself. Taking the morphe anthropu, the form, or actually Dulu, the form of a servant, And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. And so there's a trinity of uh, things there with form, likeness, and appearance. We want to discuss what those are about as we see the pre existent glory of Christ and his deity, and then his humanity. And it was humanity that came and died on the cross, and the God man who purchased our redemption. So it's a very powerful passage, and one that uh, should have tremendous meaning for for each one of us. Before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, humble ourselves, uh, make sure we're in fellowship, and prepared to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, acknowledging that to be here uh, in darkness and carnality uh, would would do us no good whatsoever. I thank you that we can confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that, Father, in this very simple procedure we are now prepared, we are cleansed, we are in the light, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and I thank you for that, Father. And it's on that basis then that we stand before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth so we call upon your faithfulness father to open the eyes of our understanding to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. we thank you and we praise you father in jesus christ's name amen all right and so this is the portion of the pair of the chapter that we're calling have this attitude And we're dealing with the Kenosis hymn that we've been looking at since point five in the outline. I think Paul wrote it. I think Paul was a a musical guy at heart. He uses different hymns at different times in Philippians and 1st Timothy and 1st Corinthians. Not everybody is convinced that Paul wrote it, that maybe somebody else wrote it and he is adapting it, that he is bringing it in and and adapting it for his purpose in that regard. Either way, whether uh, somebody else wrote it and Paul adapted it or Paul wrote it himself, it very clearly is a hymn, and uh, we can appreciate that. The "He Who" opening line is common to a lot of hymns in the Bible, as well as in uh, pagan literature. And so, we took the time to uh, to see some subpoints there, A, B, and C. I'm going to pass through those. We're dealing now with main point six, and so uh, and these are just. Structural outlines I like to use to help keep the flow of the the passage intact so we don't lose sight of where we are in any paragraph that we're dealing with uh, uh, as an expository development. In this case it's verses 3 through 11. When we get to verses 12 and following we'll start over with a fresh outline and and point 1. But under point six, then, the kenosis hymn provides a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the deity and the humanity both presented here in this hymn, and it comes across as a as a creed, it comes across as a celebration. And so Paul, or whoever wrote this, wrote this to stress his glory, uh, the deity that he had from before the foundation of the world, as well as the humanity that he adopted, and so we see it here. It is a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Now we're not a liturgical church and we're not really big on the creeds. We don't really talk about them very often. Uh, but throughout church history as the different councils came together and they had their creed for example the Apostles Creed, the Nicene Creed and so forth we understand historically what they were dealing with and why they developed them and when we agree with them biblically we agree with them biblically. Because the Bible says so not because you know, some church council at some point said so, right? And so we want to be clear on that. And this is what we pursue and this is what we, uh, what we deal with. And so, yes, we have the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. He is the God-man, undiminished deity, true humanity, united together in one person forever. And that's our Savior, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, as we see here in verse 6, uh, Philippians 2 6, He existed in the form of God, all right? And that word although, I think, should be in italics, like merely in in verse 4 is in italics. And other words are put in italics when they're not really in the Greek text, but they're supplied simply for understanding. I think uh, the word although also uh, should be italicized and may not necessarily belong in uh, in the case here, but we'll, we'll let that go for this morning. Um, he did exist in the form of God. Who existing in the form of God? Existing in the form of God. It is a participle. It does describe uh, something in his past. And if it's concessive, okay, I get that. We can render it as although. Even though he was in the form of God, he didn't cling to that. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so uh, however we understand the participle, it does relate to the fact that deity was true. He is God. He is God, very God, as we understand from John one one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Everything came into being through him, right? And so this is true. He is God. But his existence Prior to the manger, prior to being birth or prior to the uh, conception uh, in the in the virgin's womb, uh, his existence prior to that was without a body. He did not have a body until the virgin conceived and bore a son, and that was his body. Many people say that's the beginning of his humanity. Also, I, I tend to paint a. Uh, uh, with a finer brush there in describing the genesis of his humanity and make that a separate question from the genesis of his body. All right? In any event, he had the morphe theu, and that's what we're going to contrast with the morphe doulu, the form of a servant, in verse 7. He had the form of God, and then he receives now, or he takes, his active voice, he takes the form of a servant and that's uh, the trinity of expressions in verses 7 and 8 uh the the form of a bondservant the likeness of men appearance as a man okay now make a little mark for yourself because the versification is slightly off between the greek and the english all right because that being found in appearance as a man that phrase is the is in verse seven, as far as the Greek versification goes, compared to the English versification. All the versification is artificial anyway, but uh, I think the the Nestle text, uh, the Greek text, has it. Uh, I, I like having all three of those expressions in the same verse: um, form, likeness, and appearance, all in the same verse. And then begin verse eight with He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right? So that's how we're going to handle it there. He existed in the form of God. And we got these texts from John 1, from John 8. He told the, the critics, he said, uh, before Abraham was born, I am. And he talked about being in existence prior to Abraham. And uh, likewise, Micah 5.2. Let me just share this one, and we'll, uh, we'll gain new ground this morning. And Micah, whoever turns to Micah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, right? Get to Nahum, you've gone too far. But Micah chapter 5. And it's a beautiful text, and it's where we get the prophecy of the, the birth of the Messiah as being in Bethlehem. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. And this is written 700 years before the birth of Christ. But the location is pinpointed. It doesn't pick a big population center like Jerusalem or some fancy place there or Hebron, the, 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 the old tribal capital of, of Judah, he chooses Bethlehem, this tiny little out-of-the-way place. And as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. So we get that, the birth of Messiah is going to be in Bethlehem. But notice the last part of verse 2. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So here is the pre-existent glory of Jesus Christ. Unlike you and me and every other human that's ever been on this planet, we had a beginning and our beginning was our conception followed by our physical birth and our entrance into the world. Not so with Jesus Christ. He was around prior to the pregnant virgin. He was around prior to receiving a body, okay? And that's the uh, the issue there, from long ago, from eternity past. By the way, it probably explains much of the lies, much of the bad doctrine, the the, the evil and false religions, with Buddhism and and uh, and uh, Hinduism and other things about reincarnation and the preexistence of souls and the New Age philosophies that are out there that try to convince people that we, that we also are eternal, that we preceded our physical birth in a, in a pre-human uh, existence. And all that is, 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 is hooey, it's, it's non-biblical, it's evil, uh, but it may have as its source Jesus. It may have as, as its source a lie that's attempting to uh, discredit the uniqueness of our Savior how unique he truly is, that that he is in the beginning with God. We aren't. We are finite uh, creatures dependent upon God for our very existence. Alright, so he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a grasping thing. It is not a grasping thing, a thing to be grasped. And the thing about harpagmos is it's only used here in, in, in the New Testament. It's only used here. I don't think there's even a Septuagint usage of it from the Old Testament. So it's unique here as far as it goes as a noun, but it is a cognate noun to a verb we're very familiar with, one of our favorite verbs. It's harpazo, the rapture verb from First Thessalonians chapter 4. And so we know the rapture. We teach the rapture doctrine. I'm very uh, it's one of my favorite doctrines in the whole Bible is the fact that today I can be face to face with Jesus Christ. That there is a generation that will not die. And I, I pray we are that generation. I, I pray that we are the rapture generation of the church. Because when the bride of Christ is complete, then the Father will give word to the Son and He's going to take us home. And and those that are alive and remain, we're not going to die. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be harpazo. That's the verb. We will be caught up. We will be snatched. We will be grabbed. The Latin term is rapto, where we get uh, the word rap- uh, rapture, is where the doctrine comes from, from the Latin. Uh, or uh, raptor, velociraptor, those dinosaurs, or uh, other kind of raptor birds that have that name. Uh, anyway, to be snatched. And that's what we're going to be. We're going to be snatched. Well, The noun form of that, a thing to be grasped, a a grasping thing, either the act of grasping or the the, the booty that gets plundered, the thing that is grasped. And uh, and Jesus, uh, he lets it go. He lets it go, right? You know, you think about uh, Satan when he fell, he had 5 I wills and uh, they were all about grasping something he wasn't entitled to. There was a throne He wanted, He's not entitled to it. There was a position He wanted, He's not entitled to it. The fifth and final I will is, I will be like the Most High God. Well, equality with God is not a thing to be grasped. And Jesus answers that, or illustrates that, when He empties Himself, when He canaos Himself. Likewise, I think Adam and Eve, another example. They uh, they were They were grabbing things, right? <laughs> they grabbed the fruit. I don't think it was an apple, but I think it was, uh, what am I going to say? Well, I don't know. I grew up in Washington State. We're very fond of our apples. We're rather prejudiced. And the idea that the, the forbidden fruit was an apple is is a little bit offensive in, in my childhood. But then again, we see the apple with the bite out of it as the logo for this great Antichrist business on the world today. So who knows? Maybe uh, Maybe that's the case. But anyway they were grabbing Eve grabbed it, she gave it to her husband he grabbed it equality with God is not a thing to be grasped and so Jesus let it go Jesus Christ emptied himself, now the verb is kana'o, K-E-N-O-O it's got the double O ending on it because you have the short O is the Omicron the long O is the Omega and so it's kana'o only five uses, only five uses, and let 's take a look at them uh, just because I think things can be emptied, and the idea of emptying might not be the best idiom, might not be the best image, or maybe it is, maybe it 's not. Uh, maybe the idea of being made void, maybe the idea of being nullified might be better, or we 've got to recognize that the verb itself can be highly idiomatic. Depending upon the way that it's being used and its context, so uh, starting in Romans four, we'll see some of these, and then First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. There's only five; it won't take a terribly long time. But in, in uh, Romans four, at verse uh, fourteen, now without I'm not going to read. 13 verses to lead up to this, but nevertheless we, we do have a, a passage here theologically that's contrasting faith with works, right? And why we want to be saved by faith and, and we can't be saved by works. And the whole, uh, the whole program is if, if you're saved by works then you can boast about it. If somebody says they've earned it and deserved it, well then they got something to brag about. But God didn't design salvation that way. And so um, we can appreciate that. And you'll you'll see that in some of these early verses. Verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Uh, But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. See, it's by grace we're saved through faith. So verse 4, the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but what is due. It's not grace if you earned it. you put in the eight hours and you're under contract well then you get a paycheck that's not grace that's wages but to the one who does not work but believes and right there if you ever encounter somebody that tries to tell you faith is a work stop them stop them right there or that it's meritorious that we deserve something because we believe we don't believe anything we don't deserve anything it's non-meritorious his, uh, we believe him who justifies the ungodly; his faith is credited as righteousness. And so that's the, that's the theme then. And then uh, we get down through these examples. Verse thirteen says, "For the promise to Abraham, or to his seed, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of." faith. So Abraham is the example and law came after Abraham but law does not change the fact that we're justified by faith. Faith and faith alone. For if those who are of the law are heirs, okay? If if somehow if Moses giving the law at Sinai just totally replaced the promise to Abraham then we've got a problem, (laughs) okay? We've got a big problem. If those who are the law are heirs Faith is kanao, that's the verb. Faith is empty, it has been made empty. If, if there is a change to the, to the promise and to the idea of grace, if law replaces that, then we've got a problem. That means that the whole idea of faith has been set aside, it has been laid aside, it has been emptied, it has been made void. And then on that basis then, the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is no violation. And so by this, for this reason then, it is by faith. It is by faith. The whole expectation that we're going to be saved by faith, that never changed with the giving of the law. So important that we understand that theologically. Anyway, that's, that's kanao, that's our verb. And the first use of it, where it's translated made void, and we might want to consider, is that what Jesus did? Did he make himself void when he... Took on the Morphe Dulu, okay? Was that making himself void? Well, what do we mean by emptied himself? What was he doing? Because his active voice, he did it, and it's also reflexive pronoun himself. He did it to himself. However, we want to translate kanao. He cannot would himself. That's what the that's what the verse says. All right, so let's try First Corinthians. Maybe maybe made void isn't the best way. Did Je- Jesus didn't make himself void? Although, depending on how we understand Kanao, we might embrace that. First Corinthians one seventeen. Here's another use. First Corinthians 1 and verse 17. Christ did not send me... Again, there's a larger context I'm going to kind of pass by for this morning. Uh, he's dealing with a bunch of confrontational people, and they've got schisms and issues there. And so he's thankful that uh, he didn't baptize hardly anybody other than um, Crispus and Gaius in verse 14, and then he remembers Stephanus, so he adds the household of Stephanus in verse 16, and he says, beyond that, I can't remember whether I baptized anybody else. Anyway, and then in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, to evangelize. The whole doctrine Doug gave us last Sunday on the gospel. He sent me to evangelize, not in cleverness of speech. You see what happens there? Not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be kana-o, made void, emptied. Okay? And now there's an idea. Wow, this gets my attention too. It's another kana-o application. Um, wow, there's something I can do In evangelizing that wrecks it, (laughs) right? That ruins it. I can put myself, I can get myself in the way. I can inject too much of me. I can get clever, and I shouldn't get clever. The gospel is not clever. The gospel is simple, and it's supposed to be simple. It's good news to any, to whosoever will, right? It's good news, and it should be as simple as. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. How about that? That's good news. Uh, He paid the price for my sin. I don't have to go to hell. I can be reconciled to God the Father. And it's not something I can earn and deserve. It's a free gift. He paid the price so I can have this gift. Wow, that's good news. That's simple. So don't confuse it with with, uh, cleverness of speech. Don't turn the gospel into a gimmick. Don't turn it into a sales pitch or some kind of a human thing. Keep it simple. Otherwise, as Paul reflects here, uh, to try to uh, to be a a clever gospel preacher, one of these slick televangelists maybe, or one of these slick hucksters that's turning it into a a money-making operation or turning it into some kind of a thing. No, no, no. That actually makes the cross empty. You realize what you're doing there? When you're substituting your own own agenda, you're emptying the cross, making it void, diminishing it. And maybe diminish is a a good English translation. Diminishing the gospel by putting my own cleverness out there. Anyway, he doesn't want the cross to be made void. And that's our verb kanao. Chapter 9, he uses it again. So, so far we've, we're seeing abstract things being from um from uh, the promise to, uh, or faith to the cross. We've yet to see a person kana'o'd. 1 Corinthians 9.15, where it's a boast that becomes kana'o'd, uh, have used none of these things. You know, he's entitled to some cash, he's entitled to some support, um, if we've sown spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Is not the uh, laborer worthy of his support? Do you muzzle the ox while he's threshing? You know, Levites get fed from the, in their temple service. Why can't an apostle get fed? And so the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Is this God's call on your life? Well, it is God's call on your life. This is now your livelihood. But, Paul says, I've used none of these things. He voluntarily went without it. He voluntarily set it aside. And that actually is a clue for what we're dealing with in Philippians. How Jesus Christ voluntarily laid himself aside. Anyway, Paul voluntarily does not make use of what he's entitled to. And he's not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. The purpose of writing this in First Corinthians is not to put a guilt trip on the, on the Corinthians. Not to, not to twist their emotions, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. He doesn't want anybody to cannot his boast. His boast is that he's, he's serving on a grace basis as unto the Lord and not charging for anything that he's doing. And uh, he wouldn't want anybody to come along and cannot owe his boast. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So again, so we've had abstract things, right? The cross, a boast, faith. We don't want to make faith void. All right. We haven't seen a person emptied yet. Second Corinthians 9.3 I've sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be owed Again, it's boasting like we had in 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. And so he was boasting. In verse 2, he says, I know your readiness of which I boast about you, that they're ready, they're prepared, they're on board. They've they've stirred up Achaia, they're they're going to be contributing towards these funds that are being gathered and being taken to Jerusalem to support the saints in Jerusalem. And uh and yet what might cannot owe that boast? What might make that boast void and empty that boast if he shows up and turns out they're not ready? And so uh he sends a couple of brothers on ahead of time uh to make sure that they are prepared, as Paul says believes that they are prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. You've emptied our boast and we're going to be embarrassed about it. Put to shame because uh, you weren't ready and we told them you were ready. Anyway, again, it's not a person being cannot It's not until we get to Philippians then when we have a person being kanao Um, So, Philippians 2, uh, we had an idea of empty conceit that even preceded this verb. Do you remember that? We even gave you some notes about empty conceit. And that was a compound called kenodoxia for empty glory, empty deceit. So do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That's verse 3. And so that's very close to verse 7. It's It's a kenos... Compound kenodoxia, compound uh, cognate form of kenos, related to the verb kenao, and so the idea of emptiness makes sense. So, how do we handle it in two seven? Although he existed in the form of God, was not regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped, but kana-o'd Himself. So he's not grasping the equality with God. He is not grasping the morphe theu, the form of God. Because connected to not grasping the, the morphe theu is emptied himself, taking, Labone, actively taking morphe dulu. Okay? So this is, I think this is key. So he emptied himself. He Laid aside his privileges. He made himself void. However you want to render this. I like, well, empty is fine, but laid aside his privileges. All of the the morphe theu, he lets it go. He lets it go. He stops exercising the privileges of deity. All right? And that's a theological conclusion. Do not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but let it go. Emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of humanity. Men, being found in appearance as a man, in schematic, as a man. He humbled himself. And so we'll deal with that when we get to that stage. Two verbs, he emptied himself, he humbled himself. He is the active voice of both verbs and he is the reflexive object of both verbs. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. Now, any conclusions regarding Jesus self-emptying? How does he empty himself? Okay, And there's some crude things you can get into when you see how Hippocrates used this term. Remember the Hippocratic Oath? So Hippocrates used kanao several times in, in medical texts and it refers to... Uh, a bodily evacuation, okay? Um, and that was considered a, a medical procedure uh, when uh, you were having stomach issues, when uh, uh, there were problems with the food that were coming in and, and uh, different things. Hippocrates would mention, well, we need, to, we need to empty this patient. And to empty the patient then, basically to starve them uh, for a, a period of time of fasting and to empty them, Uh, was to Kanao them, okay? So how did Jesus evacuate himself? How did he empty himself? And uh, well, anyway, it was uh, through, now wasn't it through a cessation of his deity? He didn't stop being God. Can we be clear on that? I don't want anybody to walk out this morning thinking that he stopped being God so that he could become a man. That's a bad view of kenosis, although people have tried to defend that over the years. All right. Any conclusions regarding Jesus' self-emptying cannot violate uh, immutability. Immutability is is an attribute of God. God cannot change. If He could change, He wouldn't be God. He is eternal. He is immutable. He is perfect and always has been, always will be. Nothing about God can change. God the Son cannot stop being God. Neither can God the Father, neither can God the Holy Spirit. We get that. The members of Trinity are who they are. And God the Son has always been God, will always be God. Kenosis does not mean He stops being God. But remember, the verb here is not the verb for being, it's the verb for existing. And and I said a week ago, a couple weeks ago, I said that's going to become important to us. The idea of of existing is not a pure synonym for being. And that if there is a change in our existence, that does not entail a change in our being. Okay? And so he had an existence, an eternal existence in the morphe theu. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Father is spirit. The Holy Spirit is spirit. And the Son is spirit. Has always been spirit until the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then the Son obtained a new form, a new morphe, but He didn't stop being God. His being was unchanged. And we want to be clear on that. And so there's no attribute of deity. He can't stop being omniscient. He can't stop being sovereign. But He can choose... And I believe that's what kenosis is. It's an, act, it's an active verb. He did this. He actively did this. The father asked him to do this or told him to do this. And the son voluntarily did this. He kana'o'd himself, meaning he laid it aside. He let it go. The opposite of grasping, of, of holding. So he let it go. And in letting it go, he takes the form of humanity so he does. He chooses now not to enjoy any attribute of deity. He still is sovereign, but he doesn't exercise it. He still is omniscient, but he doesn't exercise it. All right? The little boy Jesus had to grow up. He had to learn. And if it was me, I'd be tempted. If I had some omniscience I could cheat with, right? I would have passed a whole lot more English exams I would have passed a whole lot more math exam. Well, I never failed a math exam, but I would have done better. My SAT scores would have been higher if I could have just uh, tapped into some omniscience on a few of those tricky questions. All right. But Jesus didn't do that. He humbled himself. He laid aside his omniscience. He laid aside his omnipresence. You know, when he wanted to go from point A to point B, he walked. That's right. Even if he had to walk across the water, he was still walking, walking. Because why? He's omnipresent. But he humbled himself to not actively exercise any attributes, to not actively exercise any privileges, prerogatives, perks of his deity. So he limited himself to a monopresent life. And for nine months, that monopresent life was in utero. (laughs) <laughs> for nine months that monopresent life was uh, the, the body the father prepared was in the womb of the virgin. And he humbled himself. And he was monopresent. And he limited his apprehension to the stimulus that a human is, is to the senses, what he could see, hear, smell, taste, touch, all the senses of humanity. Bodily humanity. So uh, let's look at Romans 15.3. Let's look at 2 Corinthians eight 9. We've got some passages here that I think address this. Romans 15.3. <clears throat> and we have concepts of kenosis that are related elsewhere besides Philippians 2. And I think when we see Parallel texts that relate kenosis principles that they help us to uh, interpret uh, the kenosis uh, verse itself. So, um, Romans fifteen says, "We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves." Now, that's applicable for you and for me, but think about it now in terms of Christ with infinite strength, the pre-existent Christ in the Morphe theu, in the form of God with omnipotent power. The, 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 the more faith that here's God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the ultimate one who is strong who ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. He went to the cross to do what we could not do. And it goes on to say, and not just please ourselves. It's not about our own pleasure. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his Edification. Is this this not the concept we've been looking at in Philippians 2, where we regard the other as more important than ourself? It's exactly the, the, the same, same principle, same concept. For even Christ, the one with omnipotent strength, even Christ did not please himself. Jesus Christ was pleasing others, specifically God the Father first and foremost, and then in the exercise of the Father's good pleasure, He came to serve us. He came to serve us. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times, and it goes on to describe that. But Christ as the example, did not please Himself. Had that been His thinking, He never would have left the ivory palaces. He never would have come to this earth. He certainly wouldn't have gone to the cross. All right, so there it is. How about 2 Corinthians 8, 9? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, through his poverty, might become rich. How beautiful is that? Now that's a different metaphor, right? That's a whole different metaphor. The realm of that illustration just went to uh, to uh, from strength to wealth to money to to riches. But it's the same message, whatever the metaphor, whether it's wealth, whether it's strength, whether it's pleasing, whether it's emptying. The doctrine that's being taught is that he laid aside. All his own self interest to come in sacrificial integrity, love, operating on our behalf. In this case, the the metaphor is riches. And so, uh, though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor. Because think about it he owns it all, he created it all, it's all his. The cattle on a thousand hills, all the money under the sun, plus the sun. Right? Everything is his. He made it all. If you make something, isn't it yours? All right. And yet he becomes poor. He sets it all aside. He doesn't, he doesn't use deity as a thing to be grasped. Either waving it over somebody, showing it to somebody, beating you over the head with it, manipulating people on the basis of what you have and they don't. No. Benefiting people on the basis of what you have and they don't. Doing what only you can do, what they cannot do. That's what our Savior did. Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. We had this not long ago. In the Hebrews hour, remember first hour is Philippians, second hour is Hebrews. And uh, notice, Hebrews 2 verses 14 through, I mean you can really take it down through 18, but Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. You know, he he could have shown up as the angel of the Lord, right? Angel of the Lord did a lot of things in the Old Testament, flew over Jerusalem and saved them when the Assyrians were attacking, killed one hundred and eighty seven thousand in one night. You know (laughs) what would that guy have done in the Garden of Gethsemane? When, you know, imagine the angel of the Lord, and here come some Roman soldiers to arrest him. Seriously? Okay. I'm the angel of the Lord. I killed 187,000 Assyrians in one night. You know, you didn't bring enough Romans. <laughs> but see, it wasn't the angel of the Lord that was born of the virgin, it was the God man, the Word made flesh. The. Um, man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their face. And he humbled himself and he allowed himself. The the traitor kissed him and they laid hands on him and they hauled him off and they scourged him, put a crown of thorns on his head. So since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." See, there's spiritual death that he accomplished on the cross, but also physical death that he submitted to after the work of redemption was complete. Remember, when he shouted, it is finished, he hadn't physically died yet. He was still on the cross. He'd finished the work of redemption with a spiritual death and took his spiritual life back up again and then uh, died physically. Uh, But this was uh, to render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The uh, mortal existence of humanity and the the fear of death, he provides the victory in that. There's no sting in that anymore, no power in that for those who walk in the newness of life. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. Okay, So therefore, like I say, you can take this not just stopping at verse 16, take it to the end of the chapter. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To identify, to understand, to be faithful and merciful, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If he doesn't identify, he can't propitiate. Why would the Father be satisfied if Jesus is not identifying with us the way that his plan designed? So, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He could be our substitute. He could take our place. He did so on the cross and he can continue coming to our aid, sitting at the right hand of the Father as our advocate. We have an advocate, a defense attorney before the Father's throne of grace. And that's a beautiful thing. So whatever doctrine, however you want to shape kenosis, whatever our understanding of how he emptied himself, he made himself void, he became poor, he, uh, the word became flesh, that he, he let go of the morphe thelu so he could take hold of the morphe dulu. However we understand these things, one thing we cannot do is diminish deity. He remains undiminished deity while he becomes true humanity. So it's both, both and, both undiminished deity and true humanity united together forever in one person. It's not a schizophrenic two people, one person, the person of Jesus Christ. All right. Now, the aorist active verb for emptying is followed by three participles. They're all aorist. But the first is aorist active, the second is aorist middle, the third is aorist passive. You get a grammar lesson this morning right here in this verse. The Greek has an active voice, a middle voice, and a passive voice. All three of them are right here. Boom, boom, boom. After the indicative verb for emptying himself. The aorist active verb for emptying is followed by an aorist active participle, aorist middle participle, aorist passive participle. All three expressions celebrate how the word became flesh. Alright, and uh, eras participles precede the action of the main verb, so this is, the, this is the process. This is how he emptied himself. He took, he was made, he was ap- uh, seen, he was appeared. Back to Philippians. So the main verb is he emptied himself. And before we get to the next main verb, which is verse 8, he humbled himself. we get that? So we have he emptied himself, he humbled himself. And the humbling himself, by the way, is submitting to physical death. And we're going to see that. But the emptying himself has three other activities. Three other verbs and other participles. So they're, um, these are the things that, that preceded and, and made it possible to empty himself or coincided with and define how he emptied himself. So he emptied himself, taking, being made, being found, or being discovered. Okay? So taking, being, being. Those are, those are participle idioms or expressions that we have in English to show the, the process. All three expressions celebrate how the Word became flesh. This is what happens now. He gets something the Father doesn't have. He gets something the Holy Spirit doesn't have. He obtains something new. Doesn't change what He had. Now He has both. Now He has a human nature to go with His divine nature. Right? Is that, is that hard to grasp? Are we, are we clear with that? It might be useful for us, by way of analogy, it might be useful for us to ask ourselves, what happened when I got saved? Well, I got a new nature. I got a new nature when I got saved. I got a new heart. I got a new nature. Does that mean I stopped being what I used to be? Or do I still have an old nature? I still have an old nature. Within me dwells that no good thing. Oh, wretched man that I am. (laughs) Who will set me free from the body of this death? So I still have an old nature. But I got now a new nature. I've had a new nature since September of 1973. That makes sense? So by analogy now, we can kind of get the idea of receiving a new nature. I'm still the same person, but I've received a new nature. Now I have two natures. My old fallen nature and my new nature in Christ. We're going to have more to say on this next hour, by the way, because this is my message next hour in, in Hebrews chapter 3. Now, the analogy breaks down, of course, because my old nature is not eternal. My old nature is going away. My old nature is going to, I'm going to bury that old nature when my family buries me, okay? Or whoever buries me. The, the fact is that old nature is, is perishing. That old nature is going away. We don't take that old nature to heaven. With Christ, his old nature is God. He's in the Morphe Theu. His form is God. He is God. That he has the nature of God. He is God. But when he receives humanity now, that's a new nature that is united forever in one person. That is a human nature, birthed by the Father, by the way, begotten of the Father, vested in the Son, united to God the Son forever. And so he has two natures. And that's what we see described here. And there's an active voice where Jesus did it. There's a middle voice where he does it and receives it. And then there's a passive voice where he's entirely um, not doing it, but he's being observed. He's being seen. He's being discovered. Eureka, I have found it. Okay, so... These are the participles. All three uh, celebrate how the word became flesh. Remember John 1? There's a difference between being and becoming. John 1 there's being and becoming. There's was and all the wases in verses 1 through 4, and then became in verse 14, verse 18. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we've got four wases there in verses 1 and 2. And then uh, verse 14 the Word became flesh. There's a become. There's a get, am I? There's a become. Okay? God is the only being that can have a was without a become. <laughs> he didn't become God. He eternally was God. He is the I am. And so God is the only being that can have absolute is statements or absolute was statements without a become statement. There was never a time that God became God. But there was a time when the word became flesh. There was a moment when the when God the Son received a human nature All right, that he didn't have before. So there is a become. And then there's verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And so He is begotten. All right, so we have these three expressions. We start with the morphe bondservant, form of a bondservant taking the form, the morphe of a bondservant. Now there's not many morphes, there's only three morphes in the Bible and two of them are right here. The form of God, form of a bondservant. The other form is Mark 16, 12. But taking the morphe, right? And we got that. It's common in our culture. You get the morph this and morph that and special effects in Hollywood movies. You got, you know, Bruce Banner morphs into the Incredible Hulk. Or you've got the the mighty morphin Power Rangers, or, or whatever you get um, Transformers, right? You get different things that are morphing. Well, all these comic books are ripping off the Bible. Morphe is a form, okay? And actually, the ancient Greeks they used Morphe a lot in their philosophy. They would talk about reality versus form. They would talk about substance and form. They had some ideas of of things that you can see in the physical universe or just forms of real things that are beyond this physical universe. And they had some crazy ideas. In any event, the idea of a form speaks to not only substance and tangibility and shape and touchability, things like that. And so it's, it's more than just that. It's more than shape and tangibility. Form actually speaks to the reality of being what that thing is and so you might be in the schematic of a person but if you're not in the form of a person you're not a real person that makes sense and so he is really god in the form of god morphe Theu, but he's also really man in the form of man Morphe. so morphe contains more than just schema the third form is schema is so we have form likeness and and schema appearance so appearances can be dis- deceiving. The shape and whatever you know. If it has a shape, as I mean, you know, if it doesn't have a tail, it's <laughs> it doesn't have a tail. It's not a monkey. Okay, I'm quoting Veggie tails now. This is terrible. If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. Even if it has a monkey kind of shape. If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. If it doesn't have a tail, it's an ape. Got it. All right, so if you ever want to know the difference between a monkey and an ape, just go back and watch your old veggie tales, okay? <laughs> um, even if it has a monkey kind of shape. You could have a shape but not really be that thing. And so it's not just, schema's not here by itself. There's morphe, there's um, the second term I'm forgetting, and then uh, uh, homooma, and then there's schema for schematic. And all three are true. He is truly human. He is absolutely truly human. He has Morphe Dulos, even uh, as he has Morphe uh, Theos. All right, uh, Mark sixteen twelve. Problem with this one is anytime you're after verse eight, then you're going to have disputes as to whether this belongs in the true manuscript of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, verses 9 through 20 are disputed. Uh, even, there are even verses after verse 20 in some manuscripts because the ending of Mark is uh, problematic. I think the best ending of Mark is verse 8. But be that as it, way, as it may, in verse 12, um, on the Emmaus road, uh, after that he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. And so I don't really have an issue with the Emmaus Road incident. It happened, it's recorded in Luke 24, we're fine with it. Uh, we don't dispute that it, it's an event, it's just the fact that the, the the longer ending in the Gospel of Mark is not in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, either way though, uh, it is a nice use of form, it is a nice use of morphe that we have to help us in Philippians 2. And it's the only other use we have of Morphe to help us in Philippians chapter 2. So, he appeared in a different form. When you read the Luke account, they didn't recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him? Well, he was hidden, you know, he was disguised, uh, not until they had dinner did they, did they recognize him. Alright, so taking the form, active voice, he took the form. He accepted the form. This is active voice. Aorist, active, participle, Jesus did this. Then middle voice, being made in the likeness of men. Being made in the likeness of men. Homoyoma, got a homo term here. Homo for the same. Sameness, likeness. And uh, as you might expect, we got Homoia. There's also uh, homoiosis, a cognate noun. Uh, thirty-six sixty-seven and thirty-six sixty-nine. If you want to use those Strong's numbers, uh, six uses of homoia, one use of homoiosis. I think the, the Septuagint uses them rather interchangeably. I'm not worked up on a distinction between oma and osis. Um, some the the uh, commentaries are are confusing to me when they try to paint with, with too fine a point on, on this issue. I think they're rather interchangeable. Yes, sir? Yes, the middle voice is reflexive. Yes. In a sense, yes. Active voice for taking, he actively took it. Middle voice, although I think the father handed it to him. We'll talk about that. Uh, being made is middle voice. Aorist, middle participle. Of genemi, by the way. Genemi to become. The same genemi with the word became flesh. The word became. Genemi is a deponent verb so it's always going to be in the middle voice. And again there'll be people that would dispute how middle is that middle if it's always middle. Uh, I think if it's always middle it's always middle. But uh, a lot of times the deponent verb is thought of as a passive with an active sense. So he was being made, well who did the making? He did, in obedience to the Father. When he took the morphe, he was made in the likeness. And then it's passive when he is found, and we'll talk about being found. There's your third noun. So morphe, homoema, and schema, three different nouns. And with a homoema, I'm kind of cheating by adding a, a homoiosis usage and uh, giving some additional verses. Because see, likeness is a big deal. Likeness is a big deal right from the very beginning of Scripture. Let us make man in our image and our likeness, right? Image and likeness. Humanity is in the image and likeness of God. And yet humanity is commanded not to make an image because that's called (laughs) idolatry. So humanity is in the image and likeness of God. Humanity in the image and likeness of God is commanded not to make an image, because that's idolatry, but then when we have children, we have children in our own image and likeness, in our own, at least in our own likeness, in uh, Genesis 5. And then, of course, Jesus comes in our likeness, right? So we see how this works? He comes not in our image, but He does come and He accepts our likeness. So our form, our likeness, and our appearance, our schematic. Schema. We'll talk about that as well. Um, I'm going to save this for Wednesday. We're going to deal with with this on Wednesday. I think we've got to take the time to discuss likeness. Sometimes likeness uh, is translated image, sometimes image is translated form, sometimes appearance is translated form. Uh, And so you have three different related terms, not all purely synonymous, but they are connected. They are linked, and they're linked here, uh, in all three. And so we'll highlight this for you Wednesday night, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for truth. I thank you for our Savior, and Father uh, of all the different forms. When Jesus came, He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and addressing Adam and Eve. He he came down uh, in the burning bush. He came down as a pillar of fire and a cloud by day. He came down as the angel of the Lord. Uh, He was a rock that was struck it produced water. Father, uh, your son made many appearances on this earth in the Old Testament, but none of those appearances were uh, the same as his first advent. Father, when He was born of a virgin and lived a human life, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Father, I thank You that it's the God-man in the flesh who went to the cross and condemned sin in the flesh, defeated death in the flesh. And Father, in all these things I thank You that we have a Redeemer and that Redeemer redeemed us. So we thank You for His faithfulness, for our appreciation. Now, Father, we want to live it out. We want to have this attitude in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. If, if there's anything we're not willing to empty or not willing to set aside or not willing to let go of, whatever it is, Father, if we're looking at our own interests instead of the interests of others, then spotlight that. Show us how un like that thinking is so that we can reject it and, uh, and, and, and embrace the attitude that Christ that Christ had, Father. So make these things clear. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.